You're in a Fenestration Conversation, where Canada's window and door industry talks about the things that matter to our businesses. Now here's your host, Patrick Flannery. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Fenestration Conversation. It's Pat Flannery coming at you from uh, Fenestration Review Magazine. Uh, great to see uh, lots of you at uh, Windor just last week. Uh, but one guy who wasn't at Windor uh, was uh, Anton Van Dyke. He is uh, recently uh, at Leighton Consulting, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But uh, Anton, I hope, will be better known to all of you as uh, a columnist in Fenestration Review Magazine. I hit him up to uh, to do that, and he very graciously agreed uh, at, uh, I guess it was the Fenestra meeting uh, earlier this year. And uh, and so uh, Anton's had a couple of columns in the magazine, and it's going really well. But uh, he, he's a guy I think you'll find out in this conversation that uh, uh, knows a lot about uh, all the all the hard technical stuff in uh, in the window industry uh, after uh, many years at uh, uh, Centra. And uh, and now we're uh, we're going to get uh, into the discussion here and try to talk a little bit about the consulting business itself. Uh, and then maybe some industries touching that as well. Uh, but before we get into all of that, Anton, uh, welcome. And uh, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself, where you've been, and, and where you are now. Yeah, thanks, Pat. Great introduction. Um, hi, everybody, and uh, appreciate the time everyone's taken out to listen and uh, see what we can learn from uh, collaboration and go from there. But, um, you know, I recently came to a conclusion with my time at Centra, which uh, was 12, almost 13 years. Um, and and with my role that I played there and just sort of working with teams at Fenestration Canada, that there's something about the consulting industry that has always appealed to me. And for those of you that don't know, I spent 12 years doing building envelope consulting. Um, started back in 1999, um, worked in Seattle, Vancouver, basically dealing with leaky condos. So kind of at the early days of leaky or maybe mid days of leaky condos, I would say. So my job was to pick buildings apart, find out what was wrong with them. Um, I probably pulled apart a good 500 over 500 buildings to sort of figure out what was going on and really helping people solve problems. And uh, that was, I think I discovered within myself that helping people solve problems in a creative way is something that has always appealed to me. And um, there's never you know, problem too big. You just break it down into its chunks and chip away at every little step of it until you get to the end goal of problem solving. And that was my role a lot at Centra as well. And um, I think just as time went on, you know, you get older, you want to do things different. And um, jumping back into consulting, I'm actually today's one month at uh, Leighton, uh, the 23rd. So um, I just was pointed that out, which is kind of cool. Time flies by when you're having fun. So I had this vision of consulting or providing a consulting service even before I started talking with the team at Leighton here that really I saw a lot of manufacturers and architects not connecting and no one was really making that connection you know designs are moving at a rate and faster rate than ever something I noticed coming out of COVID was turnover at architectural firms and engineering firms, building envelope firms was the highest I'd ever seen it. I did a lunch and learn once at a firm I knew almost everybody at, and I went there and I knew two. So a room of 25 people. And I was like, and a lot of them were young, new, and there's a need for mentorship and, and understanding in our industry. And I thought maybe there's something I can do and help out with that type of group of people. And consulting is really just 
for lack of a better definition, it's just helping people. That's consulting. What better job is to sit around a boardroom table providing advice? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I, <laughs> yeah. I get a good chuckle. I was with a developer yesterday helping them um, look at, you know, different fenestration options for a building design that's you know, potentially over budget and how do we make it work? And I'm like, I'm just sitting around a boardroom table providing them with advice. And I'm like, this is kind of fun. So, you know, it's like reassuring that um, there's a need. There's a, there's a huge need, I think, for design support in the fenestration world more than ever, whether you're doing high rise, mid rise, low rise, single family. And there's also a huge need for manufacturer support, independent support. Codes are moving at a rate faster than anyone's ever, ever experienced. And what better way to help out an industry than to have a neutral voice, a neutral perspective, an independent perspective that can you know, make everything better. So that's really been my vision with jumping into the consulting world and um, ended up teaming up with the group here at Layton. We're just in greater Vancouver, but we're operating all over North America at this point, primarily in the structural design side of fenestration, glazing frames, a lot of thermal work, you know, Layton's a, a certified sim lab for NFRC, you do a lot of thermal work. And my goal is to kind of bring another layer of consulting to the fenestration team, which is more architectural, architectural design, um, a lot of R&D support, helping manufacturers, you know, where are you at? Do you know where you're going in the next five years? Is your product ready for codes in the five, year, five years? How do you prepare? What does that look like? And sort of creating roadmaps and strategies for manufacturers and which at the end of the day is connecting a manufacturer with an architect. And so that's the synergy, the gap that needs to be filled. And, um, and that's where I'm pretty much spending most of my time right now. So you, you, you touched on some of that in your, in your last column, um, um, that, that, that idea of, of getting the, the manufacturers and the architects connected up and, 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 and on the same page and, and, and your topic there was doors uh, yeah. and, uh, and how the, 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 the larger doors are, uh, are, are, are great, uh, from a design perspective, everybody loves them and everybody wants them, but now you've got the, the intersection. Okay. I'm going to see if I can remember this properly. You're going to have to correct me. The, the intersection of the, there's the structural elements and then there were the, and then there were the, the, the NAFS elements. And then was it the sound control that you had three different things that were, that were now going to, going to be in conflict with each other possibly. Yeah, that that was, probably, I think, my first column, and, and that's an example of acoustic. So acoustical consultants are on every project now because we're getting densification. They're designing the glass. Right. They're telling you what glass to put in a window for acoustics. And you got an energy advisor. Right. They're they're telling you what glass to put in a window for <laughs> yeah. an airspace size. So an acoustical consultant that specifies a 21 millimeter airspace, for example, when all your thermal modeling is done at 12 millimeters, 13 <laughs> yeah. millimeters. Yeah. And the acoustical consultant goes... Well, I need my acoustic requirement met. And the energy consultant's going, Well, I need my energy requirement met. And you're going, I can't give you both. Yeah. I yeah. can give you part of both, but not a hundred percent of both. And they're both professionals saying, I have letters of assurance, you know, or sign-off that I have to do. What what do we do? Let alone then there's a structural guard load requirement that you have to design into a window. So an example on a project was it was a, a Lamy Lamy spec for a window. And you know. And then the structural requirement required it to be the inboard light to be tempered. Oh, okay. So, you know, who makes the decision yep. on what to pick? And, um, you know, it was a real struggle for the architect to make that decision. You know, there's no rules or process that says this is more important than that. Someone has to make that decision on a project. 
And so, but my frustration has always been is people would, you know, in the past would call me up. For example, I'll take doors when I talked to them in my last column about size. This number one question an architect or designer will ask a, a window manufacturer is how big can you make a product? Right. And someone might go, well, I can get a piece of glass from my IGU manufacturer that's this big. So therefore I can make it that big. Well, I can make almost anything. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's going to work. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, we had a, a project where they're doing like eight foot by eight foot single light windows, picture windows that are six stories up that required six mil tempered, tempered glass. And, you know, there's one thing to make that product and ship it to a site. Another thing for a contractor to figure out how to hoist it up into place. But my question was, what if the siding contractor breaks it yeah. with a hammer? Who's fixing it? And how do you how do you hoist a 450 pound 500 pound window up six stories after the building's built scaffoldings down you can't put it on a boom lift it doesn't fit in an elevator and it was like so this question goes from well you said you could make something eight feet by eight feet and i'm like well that's buildable yeah yeah <laughs> it's just not so installable where you want it to go I, I noticed there's a lot of context missing from a lot of questions that people ask. And so this is where it comes down to is trying to be that person in between where it's like, let's find design solutions, the right product for the right building, for the right design. And, you know, anything's possible, but understanding the consequences of decision-making is a fundamental role that a consultant plays. And so I find my role sometimes being, it's not like the term consequence is kind of a negative term. But if people don't understand the consequences of a decision, you know, you're going to find out down the road. So, so there's this, um, you know, I spend a lot of my time, what I call in the gaps, the, in the in-betweens of different consultants, different professionals, different designers. And, um, and there's not a lot of, a lot of people focusing, they're not paying attention to those areas. And, and so that's, that's really, um, yeah, that's kind of the crux of, um, of my sort of focus right now. Yeah, I mean, how how nice would it be if people heard and thought about and and planned for the types of things you're talking about, you know, way earlier in 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 that phase, right? I mean, I mean, how 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 much time and and effort and 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 angst would be would be avoided and prevented and cost, frankly, uh, you know, if, if you got this stuff picked up and looked at before the product is being delivered to the job site. You know what I mean? Uh, like that's. And that was, you know, my role in the manufacturing side, you know, was sort of developing the technical ability, engineering ability within an organization. And what I noticed was a lot of fenestration design is being pushed from designers onto the window manufacturer. Yes. Which at a weird aspect gets done after tender. Yeah which is kind of a weird time to do fenestration design. So you're doing fenestration design sometimes at the shop, like for multifamily projects, you're doing it at the shop drawing stage yeah. after you bid on the project. So what's happening is you're having to do structural design as part of your estimation. So when you're quoting a project, you need to hire engineering to come in to do glass and you know, figure out how thick, because if you, if a window goes from, you know, three mil to four mil to five mil, six mil thick because of the size, you know, you can have some internal processes and to determine that, but if there's a configuration of a building in an area where wind loads are higher, you got to catch that. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to have a $50,000 cost 
because glass went from four mil to six mil and he didn't catch it because he didn't engineer it when you're tendering the project. Mm -hmm. This is something that I, you know, I see a lot of companies that are, go from a single family market into the multifamily market. For example, you know, you predominantly sell your windows to single family builders while the single family market is slowing down. Housing prices are going through the roof. So there's more multifamily being built. So you have to diversify your sales portfolio as a manufacturer and start going into townhouses, going into four-story, six-story buildings. Well, they come with higher wind loads, higher performance expectations. You go from a part nine building to a part three building. Now you got design loads for guard load. Things change that if you're not prepared for, you're gonna get find out at the worst time, which is after you tendered the project. And so this is kind of an example of building awareness for manufacturers as you want to expand into new markets, you know, got, you know, looking at this from 25 years of experience going, you know, how prepared are you for water testing? How prepared are you for the wind loads? How prepared are you for the air tightness acid? All of those things need to come into place so that your, you know, your product is up to speed for those emerging markets that are growing at a rate faster than the market that you might be in. See, Anton, I knew I needed you on my commercial residential panel at, at Windor because that's exactly <laughs> the kind of thing we were talking about. <laughs> you know, the single family home, you know, replacement guy or whatever. You know, it's like wind load. What is that? You know, I, it's not, not yeah. something he's ever had to worry about. And and now, you know, now he's now he's trying to do a six story townhouse, you know, or yeah. well, that's more than a townhouse. But you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the kind of thing. Another thing, another you know, you're a bubbling cauldron of ideas, Anton. So, so, so I, I, I just, I can just basically go back and revisit things that you you mentioned in passing. You, you mentioned turnover and and at, at architecture and engineering firms, and and that's interesting because I had that very conversation uh, at Windor. Um, they, I, I can't remember, of course, who I was talking to, but 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 somebody was saying you can't go into these places anymore and see the same person twice. They, they, I, I guess I don't know what's going on there, whether they're, they've got so much growth that they're, that they're just bringing in people as, as fast as they can. Um, but, but yeah, this seems to be a, a common complaint I'm hearing that, um, that, that, that everybody at the, at that design engineering level is, is just, I guess people are retiring and new people are coming in. I don't know. What, what do you yeah. think? It's hard to say. I think at one time it slowed down, I think, a lot. But like if I go back two years ago, if you paid close attention to LinkedIn, you saw how people like so-and-so is announcing, you yeah. know, they've gone from company A to company B. So there was that part of that transient move, the lateral moving that you saw. Um, I do believe the if you combine um, retirement and you're seeing more people COVID did something with people where they saw part of life and they went, you know what? I can retire at 60. I can retire at 57. Yep. And I think you saw a lot of people retire at that age point, which what actually is missed from that is we think it's like, oh, people are just retiring. No, expertise is retiring. Mm. And I think that's the part that gets missed from the conversation is there's a lot of wisdom and expertise that you're not seeing the people I started my career out. Like if I take just the building science and the leaky condo industry here in BC, the names that were around the room, whether you're at a conference or at a luncheon or whatever, you don't see those names anymore. And those were the ones that really created the industry, the knowledge, and you're seeing a whole new generation come in, which is great. Like new gener, like this is it's transitioning over. But you see people who they never grew up hearing the term leaky condo, for example, in Vancouver, which was an indicator for me that there's a lot of people that need mentorship. 
There's a lot of people that need this transition of experience. And, and this is why consulting sort of popped back into my head. Cause I'm like, there's a way more opportunity to have an impact on an industry as an independent kind of expert out there and to share that knowledge. Um, something I learned a couple of years ago, I went through this discovery process with myself. You know, someone asked me the question, what's your purpose? And I don't know if you've ever been asked that question, but it's a, oh. it's a tough question to answer in the heat of the moment. And I actually went through a, a a process of discovery for what is my purpose? What is, what am I doing? And it was actually this thing, the concept of a purpose is to take your passion and give it away. Cause the passion is what you believe in and what you love to do and learn about and develop the act of giving it away makes it a purpose. And I was like, that is kind of a cool concept. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what about this idea of taking everything that we know and giving it away to everybody? That's kind of cool. And, um, and that's sort of the vision of that I have with consulting is I'm not going to live in my own head. I'm going to tell everybody what I know and, you know, take it for what it is. And, uh, you know, I started in my career in September of 99. So that's, you know, you got access to all that information. And so um, it's all, it's just what I know. And, uh, and you kind of go from there. So, you know, when you look at turnover, you know, if, if you're, if you're someone in an industry and you're facing retirement, you're wondering what to do, or you're thinking I'm going to retire in five years, spend the next five years giving everything away. Please do that because the knowledge you have is so needed in our industry, whether you're an architect, an engineer, a manufacturer, whatever you are, just give your information away. Don't, don't let it live with you and, um, and do what you can. So just one of the recommendations I give to people and um, there's like teaching young people, in giving advice it's just it's fun to do right it's yeah it's a fun career to have and um and so it's like you're not siloed stuck in your cubicle in an office all day long so i i think about uh i guess it's been 12 years now i started uh i started interacting with this industry uh became the editor of glass canada um the people that i saw at the committee meetings and the uh, and the association meetings then uh, are by and large a lot of them the same people now, uh, uh, and they were uh, older than me then, uh, and and which is getting scary. Uh, but they, it, and yeah, it it begs the question when 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 these people move on as they inevitably will, you know. Like, like I, I, I see, as you said, I see some new people coming in a few, but it's a few, right. And, 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 and there's a, a much, a much larger body that's, that's going to be going out very soon. And, uh, and it, it, it does, it does kind of freak you out when you think about when, when, when people like, like, I mean, uh, just, just as a, just as a random example, when Jeff Baker hangs it up, uh, I mean, really hangs it up. He's, you know, I mean, I mean. Now what, right? Who, who's who's doing our damn codes update? You know, like I guess you, Anton. I mean, <laughs> like, like, like you know, this is this is this is the kind. I mean, that that that's not true. There's other Terry can do it. There's people, but but it, it you know, it's it's that kind of thing that that you know, the the industry. I think knowingly or not has been relying on some people for a long time, and not a whole lot of people to yeah. uh, to kind of carry the water, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you hit the nail on the head right there. So yeah. And yeah. So um, more on that, 
the the fast pace of change. Uh, I, I'm finally getting to one of the things we actually had written down. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Uh, the, 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 the fast pace of change, um, you know, Mike uh, Bruno was uh, pounding the desk uh, uh, at the at the panel discussion, um, basically saying, and of course, this is Mike, um, that uh, that everyone is going to go out of business. It, it, it's it's over. It's over for the industry because because the way they keep changing things, it that you can't keep up. You can't get on top of it. It's it's it, now it's you know we just got energy efficiency figured out and now it's going to be embodied carbon you know it's it's it, this is this this is a disaster. Is he right, Anton? Is this? I mean, I mean, I mean, is it is it is it too much? Does it have to slow down? Change is inevitable. Yeah, rate of changes. You know that's the subjective part, right? And yeah. it, it's within change. There's opportunity. There can be opportunity. Um, you know, I, I've my whole career because I, I started my career when massive change was coming, leaky condos. So I started out dissecting buildings that weren't working, and then we're fixing buildings that weren't working. And then in BC, they started in early 2000s. They added all this new regulation to builders about how, so we didn't have leaky condos again. It's a good thing. So that change was an example of you know something that was desperately needed to create. Um, uh, respect in the industry again because builders were just getting vilified because buildings like people were two years in a building and it was rotten type of thing that's what we're going through and so I learned to embrace change because I was starting my career out right in change so I'm this 22 year old kid showing up on a construction site telling a 50 year old site and superintendent how to build a building Face that one. Popular guy. Oh yeah. Like I got chased off sites. They're like, I, you know, the number of times I heard the term I've been doing this for 30 years. And some guy taught me to respond back saying, well, you've been doing it wrong for 30 years. And I learned that's the wrong way to approach people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but the reality is, is change is, you know, it's, it's this tough thing to, to when you're, I'll back up here as a manufacturer, I think it's change is tough because you invest significant amount of infrastructure to manufacture product for today. It's hard to, the idea of is, are you ready for the tomorrow is the question I'm asking a lot of people. And, and I'm actually getting to a point where I've called this thing called future proofing. Have you future proofed your product? Like look at the automotive. If you think fenestration is one thing, look at automotive industry and government saying electric cars by what year? Like right. how are we going to pull these things off? The reality is, is government, is, you know, to quote Jim Collins, you know, the bus, if you've read good to great, you know, we got the bus, you know, who's driving the bus, what seat do you sit on the bus? What a lot of people don't talk about is who built the road that the bus is driving on. And do you know where that road is going? Right. Because if you're a manufacturer and you're, you've got your bus and you've got everything going for you and it's looking really good, and you're driving on the road, but you have no idea where the road is going to go, then yeah, it's scary. Right. Like who goes on a trip with their whole family in the car and doesn't really have an end destination in sight? You don't, right? You plan. So the reality comes down to is, you know, you need to start paying attention and always look five years out. That was that's the number one rule. If if anything, have somebody in your organization who knows where things are going to go five years out. How do you do it? Get on a code committee. Like 
when people ask me all the time, like, how do you know so much about, like, I didn't know much about windows until I joined a window manufacturer. And then I, even two years in people are like, how do you know so much about windows? And I'm like, I just look at it. Like, <laughs> how do you know so much? So I started a few years back, well, probably eight years ago, I bet was the first time I started um, taking a week off work in July and sit on my deck and I would read the code front to back every two years. And you were the only one in Canada. Probably. <laughs> and I started introducing myself that way. Hi, I'm Anton. And I read the code front to back every two years. And it actually, people are like, you do that? Like people do that? And I'm like, it takes, takes 40 hours. Yeah. How many hours in a year? Yeah. Over a thousand. So it's 40 hours worth of time to consolidate everything in there. I pulled out 70 pages worth of fenestration requirements in the BC building code. And as a result of that, I knew the code better than inspectors. I knew the code better than policy. Like basically it was myself and the guys writing the code. Then I got involved in code committees. So I'm working with the people writing the building code and we're working together and collaborating together. Is this gonna work? What direction? What happens if we do this? I learned how government makes decisions about how to change U-values. Like when they push the U-value threshold, why? Why did they pick that number? I know why, because I have part of the conversation as to why. And so when you start to get into that level of, of activity in your organization, change is not as scary. Because right. you can kind of sit there going, yeah, this is where it's going to be two years from now. It's probably going to be there five years from now. Okay, let's look at our, our product lines. Does the U-values measure up? Okay, these ones were off by five hundredths of a decimal point. Okay, let's focus on some R&D on that specific item because that specific item is going to be, okay, do we need to upgrade our equipment? You know, where's that going? So I look at um, a big change coming that's for the positive, not a negative. The reduction, the rela relaxation of uh, combustible windows and non-combustible construction in the National Building Code. That is a huge, huge change that is going to open the door for certain manufacturers to expand product lines. Mm -hmm. But when you're putting windows on a 20 story, if you're going to put vinyl windows on a 20 story building, you know, combustibility aside, that's dealt with. Well, now structural. Okay. Do you have the equipment to make the product to meet the structural requirements for that market? If you don't, well, you got a bit of time. You might want to start investing in that aspect of your business and be ready for it because now you can do one quote and you can get a couple million dollars worth of window supply in one building versus how many houses do you have to sell to get the same volume of windows? So changes how you want to spin it really is um, good or bad. There's always opportunity and change. And if you are a trailblazer, you can get in front of change and you can be ready when it's time to go. So I think it's, um, it's the tough part about it, but you know, pay close attention to the road that the government has paved. And then start looking where the potholes are in the road and look at what's not perfect. And like everything, there's gaps and um, within gaps, there's opportunity as well. So I, I, I couldn't agree more. I've, I've always um, I've always tried to tailor my content that way in the channels a little bit is 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 I, I'm I'm less interested in what's going on today than I am in what's likely to go on tomorrow. Uh, I, what's going on today is, you know. Uh, it's already here and, and, and either you've dealt with it or you haven't. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that, that, that down the road thing. And yes, the codes, I mean, it, it is possible to find out what is, what is going on and what is coming 
in 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 the codes uh if you uh if you get in the committees or if you take advantage for instance of the events where people who are on the committees are talking because you know they a lot of times can't say a lot uh uh sort of publicly but uh, over yeah. here uh you'll find out what's going to happen um and uh and 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 that information is out there you should find out what they're talking about you know the the fenestration canada community yeah. is such a great like out of in all my years of working it's really gotten in this in the fenestration business the fencan community of manufacturers getting together like i just remember last year leaving windor and i think we're all at the airport flying home at the same time all yeah. waiting to finish the plane and just that camaraderie was just you know what you realize is everyone's struggling with the same thing mm-hmm. you know it's one of those things where someone puts their hand up someone's like anyone have this issue and kind of no one wants to admit it and then all of a sudden someone's like i do and then the next person, I, do, and I do and then everyone's like we're all struggling with the same thing and it's like interesting yeah. um maybe there's you know some things you can actually work like that's what i love about associations within industries is that if you can once you get connected with people there's so much power in the community uh, working together right so something i encourage everybody to do is be part of the groups not just don't just show up like get involved um a mentor of mine taught me says if and i think a mentor taught him and he just kept it he says if you don't like what's going on get involved and change it mm-hmm. Stop mm-hmm. complaining. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you can, like society is made up of people. We're all the same people. You can yeah. literally change things if you put enough effort into it. So, yeah. so yeah. And on that, you know, and, and, and just, I, I don't know, I guess closing off that pace of change point. Uh, I mean, you know, you think about the last, uh, tell me if I'm right. I, th- I think, I think that the, the, the last big thing would have been the transition to vinyl, uh, which, which basically, uh, you know, from wood to vinyl, uh, uh, basically driven by the oil uh, crisis in the seventies, uh, and uh, and and a sudden interest in in energy efficiency or or, or something. Um, there was the big transition to vinyl, but then I mean, you know, then you had thirty years in there where where a manufacturer could do largely the same thing. I mean, I mean, there 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 didn't have to be any change. The, any R and D, you know, uh, uh, it was it, it appearance, you know, maybe uh, maybe get some better operators on there, have that have that slider run a little smoother, you know, the, the, this kind of thing. But but it, it was the, there was there was nothing major, right? And then we get this tsunami of 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 energy requirement hitting us, uh, you know, early two thousands or starting to, right? And 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 since then, it's just been. Every code cycle has another major target, you know that 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 they're trying to hit. Um, so yeah, I mean, it. it would you agree to that? I mean, that there has been a massive shift. Well, uh, society, like the evolution of society, we just get smarter as we evolve, right? Yeah. And so you go from uh, an industry of standardized windows, like you used to be able to just walk into a like the builders built homes based on windows that were on shelves, right? And the, the industry, I think started connecting with architects going, well, tell us what you want and we'll build it. That was a transition mm-hmm. that I don't think really got people paid attention to. And also next thing you know, every window's custom. The, what I think has changed isn't so much like, yeah, we went from wood, you know, aluminum, wood, vinyl, 
you know, the, the change from aluminum, from residential aluminum to vinyl was probably driven more from a condensation perspective. I remember in the early 2000s, putting vinyl windows in buildings, man, that was the pre pre premium product. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was like, oh, we're going to do vinyl. And, and you know, early generation vinyl versus vinyl today. But the, the main change is the, the we've moved away from prescriptive performance and we've focused on like prescriptive requirements and moved to a performance requirement. So we're not, we're looking at ideas of like, Windows just used to have this, you know, no one was designing windows for guard load or specific loads. They were just pick this window, put it in this opening. And there was sort of certain expectations, patio doors, temper the glass. And so the codes were very simplistic back in the seventies and the eighties, very prescriptive, especially part nine. And, and so it's even part nine today still has prescriptive paths, but part nine of the code has a performance path for everything. And you can't build a single family home now of, you're supposed to be able to build it without an engineer, but most municipalities won't allow you to. Like I just built a shop, a detached garage in my at my house, and I had to hire a structural engineer. I'm a part nine. My background in schooling is part nine home design. I designed the whole thing using span tables, all this, and I submitted to the city, and they're like, "Well, where's your engineer?" I'm like, "It's a part nine building." Well, you still need an engineer. That's the change. Really? Yeah, because of seismic in, in BC. We have oh, seismic. right. So, but here's the kicker is the guys who wrote the building code for seismic created a part nine handbook. So you don't need to hire an engineer to do seismic design. So I downloaded the handbook. I designed my shop for all seismic, all the shear panels, the nailing patterns, plywood thickness. I did it all. City still says, nope, still got to hire an engineer. <laughs> That's where I think the shift in change has really done things where you've got individual designers now coming in and dictating how to do things, which has changed the landscape quite a bit. And so it's it's taken the control away from a manufacturer to say, here's the product I make, therefore that's the product you should use. To now it's gone to a designer saying, here's the product I want to put in a building. Can you make that product? Yeah. So it's just changed the way we do things. And buildings more and more have gone heavier on the design side. Like I hate to say it, like I'm jumped into consulting and like we're consulting to buildings to death. But it's the reality of where the codes are going and they're not going to go backwards. They're going to keep going forwards. And in a way, performance design models versus prescriptive can be way more cost-effective. That's where I think people are missing the actual boat is they're going regulation might this deem to be increasing costs, but smart designers can value engineer. I hate the term value engineering because it always seems to be weakening something, but actually the proper way to look at value engineering is to not design like over design things, design things for what they are. And that's it. Don't, you know, you don't need a, a super high, high, high performance window in a, in a mild environment. Like what, like putting in a high performance window when it gets to minus 10 for like two nights of the year in Vancouver versus in Winnipeg is going to be a different thing. And so, you know, the prescriptive requirements, like I look at something like energy star, which is this national program, but we have a very diverse environment. Right. How, how does that program work? That's a program that worked really well in the prescriptive framework, but now we're in a performance model. And you know, you don't put the same window on the south elevation as the north elevation. We've gotten smart, right? We've we've figured out how to be more efficient. So we're gonna put a we're gonna put a bit more low E on a window on the south side than we are on the north side to save some money. 
So that's the, you know, that's the opportunity and the change in the, in the shift. If you went out and you just bought a welder and a saw and thought you were going to slap windows together and, and, and make a, make a product and, and, and put it in the local hardware store and have that go. Um, well, you probably already know you're doomed, but, but I mean, I mean, it, it uh, like, okay. And then extrapolate, you know, d down through the years, that model of I'm, I'm just making, I'm just making the standardized product and, 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 and out it goes, um, you're going to want to look at that, right? I mean, going 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 forward, because one of the things I had a conversation a while ago on uh, was it this podcast or was it Glass Talk? I can't remember um, about um, some of the new contracting models, and 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 on uh, on on larger commercial products uh, uh, projects um, and and even smaller ones, uh, the, the 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 contractors are getting very keen on these partnership models where 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 people are spreading the risk and responsibility around and 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 there can be benefits to that if you hit certain targets there's there's bonuses um and 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 what it all comes to is what you're talking about where being involved on the design side uh and being and being involved in how would i say like the the whole performance of of, of what you're doing on the project is is they want more and more of that. The, the the contractors want more of that. The project owners want more of that. And then, yeah, when you're getting into doing performance path uh, energy modeling and and performance path, you know, assessment of everything, you've everyone has to be involved in that right off the bat, right? So, I mean, that's yeah. I, I guess that, yeah, that's that's the change really is that um, the designers have everything is going performance path, but the designers aren't necessarily the traditional designers, the architect who took a lot of prime responsibility for the whole, like you talk about risk, they, they're used to more of that prescriptive aspect. And so what's happening is more than ever, I think I've seen in the construction industry is that design issues are being pushed onto trades more than ever. That's something that I started to notice is like, how come these designs aren't being vetted out? And if I actually take my experience in the U.S. market, which has a much higher litigious part, yes, market, less code regulation, but more lit lit litigious market. So it kind of self polices itself. Um, versus in Canada, we like to have more regulation. And in the U.S. market, there wasn't a project I was involved in that didn't have what we call the design charrette. And there was sometimes, depending on the size, there'd be like three or four of them. And what these were was early design meetings where every consultant and major trades, they would hire like a glazing contractor. If I did a performing arts center, for example, and they brought in the glazing, a glazing contractor and paid them at a pre-design fee to sit at a table and provide advice to the architect, to the engineers and everybody about what they could and couldn't do for this project design. So all those issues got figured out before pen really went to paper at a final four. And that that really helped clean up the, um, the whole industry. It helps clean up and finds that risk before the risk becomes a problem. And so, you know, when you talk about partnerships in contractors and that concept of sharing the risk, what I find is what needs to really change in our industry is good design up front, proper design up front, deliberate design up front, um, instead of, you know, drawing something, going to tender and let's figure it out later on. And, um, you know, usually what drives projects to 
kind of incorporate some of this and they realize is when they're over budget. You'll never see a developer change a process than when a project is over budget and they can't get it built. Yeah. So that'll bring all people to the table and no one has any problem paying for a meeting for sort of high, like expensive people to sit around a table for an entire day when a project is over budget. Cause <laughs> you know, you can figure out how to save a million or 2 million bucks on a project, which is very possible these days if you put all the right people around the table early on. So I think the concept of partnership and the role fenestration plays in that partnership, actually, you're just, you're hitting on something that I think is really, really important. Um, it needs to be elevated and that topic needs to be, and that's something that I'm trying to do is before a development permit is finalized, let's have a chat because I bet you there's one project, for example, I'm looking at right now, it's an eight story building and I've, I'm seeing about $1.2 million savings that I could contribute to the project if we just sat down and talked for about a half an hour. Hmm. Just on the, on the, on the fenestration side of it or overall? Yep. Yeah. Current yeah. window design, the amount of tempered glass that's going to be required based on the mullion locations and, you know, just change up a couple configurations, unitize things a little bit different in size and the significant savings can be huge. You, you, you see it all the time. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, architects bless their hearts uh, uh, are 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 very very knowledgeable about a lot of things, um, and uh, and and but but they're on a spectrum uh, of some being more knowledgeable than others. Uh, I think like anybody, and uh, and and I have been in conversations and meetings and been a little bit amazed at at the, the some of the 30 year old information that's still floating around out there uh on the on the on the design side uh and you know and it's 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 stuff like that can that can crop up if if somebody like yourself isn't looking at the project and going and going hey you know what what about this over here you know uh, i mean that 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 cut and paste from 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 1997 isn't cutting it anymore you know yeah it's it's pretty common so these are a lot of these are a lot of good reasons why uh, why 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 we like consultants and we want them to get involved, um, and then and then there, there's there's another uh, but but there's a tension out there, Anton. There's a tension you you might be you might be interested to hear about that I you probably know about uh, 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 governments and code committees and people making the standards and everything else uh, rely heavily on consultants. Uh, they 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 are they are very keen. Uh, to 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 listen because you're independent. You're, you 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 don't have you don't have a dog in the fight as far as the product that's getting built and that's getting delivered. At least not directly. Um, you're uh, they they they're reluctant sometimes to listen to the person trying to sell a window on on what the specs should be on a window. Um, and uh, and and then sometimes, but then sometimes the manufacturers look at it and they go. Why are these test lab guys and these consultants and they're in the government agencies uh, 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 telling them, you know, basically making, I'll, I'll give you their line, making work for themselves. Well, this 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 would have been your line a, a month ago, <laughs> making work for themselves by 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 setting the standards ever, ever higher and ever worse. Talk to me about all of that. Where, where do you come down on that whole thing? It, it's a very valid point. And I think it's it's a, an honest point to, yeah. to bring up and and people need to bring that up more uh, yeah. at the end of the day. My personal lens on this is the reason, you know, what I bring to it from like every consultant is going to bring their own experience to the table. 
And so knowing your consultant, knowing who you're working with, like just because someone puts consultant in their title, you know, I could read five books and become an expert at something, but am I an expert? Mm. You know, and, and I think the important part is, is there's different types of consultants and the lens I'm bringing, what I want to bring is a manufacturing lens to consulting. So, you know, it's really important to look at when you're talking to a consultant, to look at the credentials of the consultant, you know, and even government, like government's looking for, government doesn't want to necessarily create the processes in which things should be done. They're going to create the rules that you should follow. Right. Then they're going to go and contract out to people to come up with processes on how to do things. And, you know, bless some people's hearts. They're really good at complicating it, things from there. And I'll take the thermal modeling business right now in BC is all over the place. And, you know, I sit down with uh, Jonathan Layton here where last night we're going through some stuff and, and I keep, you know, he's looking at me going, how would this impact a manufacturer? If we do this and talk about this, is this going to, you know, is this going to create easier paths for the manufacturer to be compliant or more difficult paths to be compliant? And so we're always trying to analyze things from a manufacturing lens. Some consultants will analyze things from an architectural lens, from a developer lens, from a, you know, just a standpoint of technical proficiency lens. And so it's a real tough one to kind of look at when it comes to, you know, our consultants self-serving, I guess is kind of to simplify your question. Yeah. They, they're creating a market for themselves by creating more complexity. Um, I don't see that per se, because if consultants didn't exist, I think government would be creating the road no matter what. Mm. And so what we have at a at a policy making level that I, you know, has really transitioned in the last five years is you see a lot of municipalities, provinces declaring climate emergencies. They want to show action towards, you know, solving climate change. They're looking for shovel ready concepts that they can just enact on and move, or they take stuff that's sort of partway in process and finalize it and push it down the, down the line. So these things are there no matter what you do, they're not going away. Governments are being elected based on platforms of promising action on climate right. change. And so, you know, what, and everybody knows housing is a big contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And so it's inevitable, they're gonna do it. And, and so consultants bring an independent lens to how we can do it. I think the important part is just consultants have to be respectful of all the, all the different impacts that they're having on an industry. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part where you see frustration from some people is some people come at it from an impact. They're not, you know, and it might just be, they just don't have the experience. They don't have the experience to understand that um, if you do this, you eliminate sliding windows. So I foresee a time when sliding windows will be eliminated. I, I had a meeting with a, a company, um, for example, and you know, the BC has an energy efficiency act, which sets the U value at 1.61. And it's like, you know, what's this doing? Where's this going? Why is this number, this number it's our, our sliding windows are struggling to meet that, that rating. And I go, yeah, that's their policy. Their policy is driving market to be like their, their policy is going to make your product can make product obsolete. Yep. So, but here's the thing is they, this was coming five years ago. We knew it like we could prepare for yeah. it. So, so it's the, the reality is, is 
consultants are at a different position than a manufacturer. So they're looking at things in a different lens and providing insight. And sometimes I think we can get caught up in the, yeah, that can be done versus, is that a good idea? Mm -hmm. That's, is that doing anything good? And so it's, it's looking at, um, you know, and I'll use the thermal modeling aspect of, you know, we're in BC, for example, there's a big push for more project specific thermal modeling to be done. And we're not like, no one really, this is sort of coming from government. They want more accuracy, better numbers, you know, energy advisors are coming in. There's a whole new layer of consultant there who's doing energy calculations on whole homes. So they want to, they don't, you know, looking at how NFRC was set up in the past with standard sizes versus does that U value match the actual window going into the house? Well, it doesn't because it's an NFRC standard size U value. So, all the, so they're asking all these questions going, oh, there's a gap. Well, now what? And that's kind of like, you know, it's not like people want to overcomplicate this thing. It's the system that we had before was not complicated enough to solve the problem. And so there's all these heads that need to sit around a table to solve the problem. And so it's a, it's a tough one to, to do there. But I think the important part, and I'll go back to the bus analogy, the government has paved the road. Right. Maybe it's, maybe it's a gravel road. It's a bumpy road. <laughs> and manufacturers got the bus on the road. And, you know, as a manufacturer, you're reliant upon, you know, your focus is on today. You know, you got to make money. You got to, you know, stay above, you know, keep things going. You got to deliver on time. You got to do your quality control. You got to do all of these things as, as a manufacturer. And, you know, are you, who is paying attention to where the road is going? And so that's sometimes where consultants can really help and provide you with alternate ways of driving down the road in a way. So you got to look at a consultant for what they are and what their experience is and, um, and engage with them in a way that you tell them what you want, you know, and the manufacturers speak up, say what you want. And uh, we can be a voice for, for that side of the, the industry as well. So. Well answered, sir. <laughs> I technical, technical challenges coming up. And one thing you've mentioned a couple of times is, um, thermal testing. Um, I wonder if on the, especially on the residential side of the business, have we done enough work on thermal bridging um, and understanding um, where that's, where that's impacting things? And could we be sparing ourselves some angst uh, when it comes to, um, when it comes to our modeling, especially performance path modeling by, doing more, doing, doing more, having a better understanding of that and doing more to make sure the products aren't bridged uh, or, or is that something we're not even going to be worrying about so much um, if the embodied carbon thing takes over and, and, and we don't, you know, we're, we're not, we're not so worried about operational carbon anymore. I think the concept of thermal bridging is very well understood. Through yeah. I don't, it's probably not a, applied well, but it's understood well. It's it, and if you see it in commercial construction, it's very well thought through when it comes. Yeah, to they work hard doing, on that. Yeah, yeah. It's residential part nine single family homes. You're not really looking at that. It's it's probably too deep into the weeds. Um, yeah. It's probably a bit. It could be a bit misleading, probably, if you're going to start digging at thermal bridging, because you know when you got to look at a single family home as this collective things coming together to create this sort of performance. I think there's. Yeah. There's bigger issues on, you know, wood frame construction, single family, you know, mid-sized buildings when it comes down to overheating, 
Um, you know, there's a lot of low hanging fruit to chip away at that can be solved with some very simplistic policy changes. Like I'm hearing uh, caps being put on solar heat gain coming into codes. Right. You know, that's going to have a huge impact. That little change right there is going to hurt a lot of window manufacturers that are using the ER path as a compliance path. But, you know, high solar heat gain re results in overheating. That's, so that's going to be a technical issue a lot of people are going to face that have leveraged the ER number as they're, you know, in the national code as a compliance path. So what does a cap mean? So it's um, so prepare for that because you might not get there then with a U value where you need to be. So the thermal bridging aspect comes down to this sort of collective, you know, we're going, we're talking about wall insulation, for example, not as like what bat insulation are you putting in? We're talking about effective wall insulation now. So that's yeah. a, that's another way of saying, yeah, we've tackled thermal bridging of studs by talking about effective R value. We're putting exterior insulation on buildings. So there's a lot of understanding there. And I don't think that's going to be a barrier to, to okay. change and growth. I think um, the thermal modeling side, you know, some of the policies moving faster than the enforcement arm. That's a, to me, that's probably the number one biggest red flag that we're going to face is because in, there's very little enforcement. And in some cases, there's massive debate of how to do thermal modeling accurately. Right. And so, you know, with, with those things at play, you know, what does it mean? Who's doing it right? Who's doing it wrong? If one company is doing a calculation one way, another company is doing the calculation another way, you're getting apples and oranges. How do you compete in a fair market when you don't have processes that are very well defined and there's no enforcement or the enforcement arm isn't trained significantly enough to be able to actually police it to a certain extent. And I use this analogy a lot for people, like it's how our communities are structured. You know, what's the speed limit on the highway? You know, it's a hundred. Right. Fast do you drive on the highway? Everyone goes faster. Yeah. And, and then here's the other one is, you know, how fast would you speed past a cop before the cop would pull you over and give you a ticket? One, one nineteen. That's <laughs> I've, I've tested, I've tested this rigorously. Yeah. And so this is how our communities are structured, right? Everyone's got this sort of thing. And so when the codes come out and say, here's the speed limit and there's now there's no cops. Yeah. Right. So to some people, they're going to go, there's no cops. I'm going to do 150. You know, that's reckless. There's other people like, and so there's this sort of dial of, of things going on and what happens when policy outpaces the ability to be compliant so some manufacturers might look at that and go, how do I do it? But there's no cops. So what does that mean? And so I, I think there's this, this process that needs to be um, thought through very detailed, um, especially when everything is performance-based. And so this is where I think a lot of policies are going performance-based because they're becoming dependent on third parties, architects, design professionals, engineers to sign off on buildings instead of it being a building inspector type of thing that are signing off on buildings. So it's um, that is going to probably be the single most frustrating technical aspect is you can spend a lot of money getting your product up to speed only to find out there's the enforcement arm is weak and no one is actually saying good job because they don't know how to say good job they, to a certain extent. So it's 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 something, I know there's a lot of work going on with educating building officials um, in conjunction with it, but in like BC, we have the step code and we're moving so fast through the steps as minimum policy that it's creating a bit of a challenge in regards to, you know, what is step three, what is step four, what is step five and how do we um, enforce it? So 
Because because how they reference it now, if I'm not mistaken, is basically just it, it's it's the scientific uh, the sciency numbers themselves, right? Like here's the here's the U value need. Here's here's how much is being lost. Uh, uh, what is it? EUI or something. Ah, damn, I'm 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 messing up my acronyms. But anyways, they they basically have absolute science values for for how much energy the building can lose or 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 or, or gain without yeah. specification for how it's tested and how it's measured they they don't measure like hot hot 2000 tests or therm tests or anything like that or like is there a, is there a system out there that they could simply reference in this in the codes i haven't encountered it yet and what i've started to started to really wrap my head around the energy advising industry and and figure out what it, what what are they doing Right. How, do they, how do they do their calculations? What does it mean? What does hot 2000 mean? What do these energy modeling guidelines mean? And I started comparing it to structural engineering. So take a, a deck. If you're a structural engineer designing a deck, you're gonna design it to take maximum load. So uh, an average adult standing toe to toe on the deck or a bridge fully loaded with you know semi trucks, completely loaded up bumper to bumper on the bridge. They're designing bridges decks to this maximum load so that it doesn't collapse under this Define load, and then they have safety factors. What I've discovered with energy modeling is everything's based on references. So you can't design a house to consume X amount of energy because the climate outside changes. From one year to the next, it's colder, hotter, it's different. You can't design a house, say that, well, this house can only have four people living in it forever. Right. It could have six, it could have eight, it could have two. And so what happens with this is you actually can't, you can commission things like you could do some sort of testing. You can do air leakage testing. There's some tools you can use to gauge, but at the end of the day, no one's really going to know if this house produced exactly the outcome that it was modeled at. Right. And that's what I've discovered when it comes to thermal modeling with windows is the level of precision that's needed is actually not the, not where we need to spend time. It's, it really comes down to is, you know, there's a level, we need to decide at what level of precision is good enough. Mm -hmm. Someone needs to make that decision. So the way NFRC was set up is it's all based on standard sizes. So you can compare one manufacturer's performance to another, but we're using those values as design metrics now on a window that might be twice the size. Well, a window that's twice the size is going to have a better thermal performance because it's glass to frame ratio is better. Right. Or a smaller window, it's going to be lower. So everybody kind of knows this. But you know, understanding how accurate those numbers need to be and their overall impact is going to be huge. The other part is, I think uh, we're starting to have the conversation on is convert a U value to an R value and look at the variation of like the range of the number, and then compare it to the insulation you put in a wall and a roof. And you know, the windows, you know, going from a double to a triple glazed window, and you see the U value impact and convert it to R value, it's like two, yeah, R two. Yeah. And so you were making all of this, this is where the embodied carbon conversation comes in is, you know, this idea of going from a, an R4 window to an R6 window, but how much embodied carbon are you using to improve the R value by two? And, you know, houses have a 50 year lifespan. How much energy is that going to, or how much carbon is that going to reduce to the operation of the house versus how much was used in the production of the extra material that went into the house. This is all starting to come. I'm, I'm actually kind of grateful that we're having these embodied carbon conversations because I got really frustrated when I saw people say, we should just put triple glazing in all of our homes. Right. And I went, wait a second, there's bad triple glazed windows. Yeah. 
really good triple glaze windows. How, so anytime I hear someone talk about triple glazing as a design metric, yeah, I go, what you value? Yeah. Oh, uh, 1.2. Well, I can do 1.2 in a double glazed window. Yeah. Like no, a really good double glazed window, you can get a 1.2 U value, sub 1.2, and a poor triple glazed window is a 1.2 U value, but the embodied carbon that goes into one versus the other is significant. So these are really cool conversations. Like when we talk about consultants making life difficult, this is stuff that I know consultants are diving deep into and going, is adding all this extra material into a building good for the overall life cycle of the home from cradle to grave? And so there, this is um, over the next decade, I think we're going to start to get some really good ideas of how to do things well. And unfortunately, it's going to take a lot of consultants to figure it out. Um, but that's really the, the building industry we're going to get into. So I've seen some back of the envelope guys come up with 20, 25 year carbon paybacks on triple glazed, right? So so if you if you start adding up the 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 week after week, month after month, year after year savings on energy, it takes you 20, 25 years to get the extra embodied carbon back out of the back out of the project now, now put that in vancouver it where right you have, where you have mild winters yeah it never right. comes back or you put it in ontario where all the power if you have electric heat uh, if you have a heat pump in ontario all the power is coming from hydro or nuclear yeah and, and same thing is in bc most heat comes from uh, natural gas so putting triple glazed windows in vancouver when you're heating with natural gas, like it's so this is sort of this balance aspect of everything. That can, and so they're great, great conversations. They're complex conversations, but you know, the ideas of these conversations are, are there. And, you know, the reality is they're like, if, if you think these things are going to go away, if you don't like the idea of having to provide a, you know, a carbon metric on your product, um, you're probably going to have to figure out how to do that. I, I don't see it yeah. going away. And it actually is going to benefit, I think, the manufacturing world because, you know, the amount of waste we probably put into product for the sake of what? Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that are made that we actually don't need to make that are consuming materials and energy that we could probably get more efficient with. And, you know, that's just the nature of, of manufacturing. And, um, you know, if we can get leaner, we can get lower our costs speed things up, you know, it's less wear and tear on machines. There's all these things, benefits that come with these ideas that we go into. And look at housing from the 1970s. You know, how many barrels of oil did we burn heating homes from the 70s? <laughs> you know, and, and this is where I think, this is where I think the, the consequence that we have to be careful of. If, if you look at why we had leaky condos in BC in the 80s and the 90s, we went from a construction, what changed in construction? from this, a building in the 70s to a building in the 80s. And government kind of came in and said, well, we're burning too much oil, oil crisis. So we're like, we need to make houses more energy efficient. So what did they do? They went from two by four walls to two by six, not for more structural strength, but to put more insulation in the wall. Then we put poly on the wall because we have a vapor drive and we have to deal with that. That made the plywood colder on the outside. What happens when the plywood's colder on the outside and you have less air leaking through a wall and it leaked, buildings from the 70s leaked as much as building from the 80s except your drying potential went way down once you put more insulation and air tightness in the wall. So the consequence came up. This issue existed, but a tiny little change. 
So this is where we have to be careful in our industry is change without thought can become a real problem. And I'll go back to why consultants are important. This is what we think about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we try to think exactly. about the consequences of doing something of a change and what impact could that potentially have. And I'll use like the introduction of doing more project specific thermal modeling in hot 2000. There's a val there's a, if you put high solar heat gain into a calculation right now, it makes a house look like it performs much better. Mm -hmm. Consequences is overheating. We're going to be faced over the next decade of homes being uncomfortable, very uncomfortable and unlivable as their climate warms. And the demand on air conditioning is going to go up, but there's a lot of buildings going in with high heat gain because it is a formula in the current system that is a solution to an energy calculation. Yeah. Which, which is something that is going to have to start changing. And so seeing codes with their, their capping solar heat gain, these are the kind of things that I think are going to be good overall for the whole home performance. Was just looking at a comment on the website this morning, uh, from a guy talking about his passive house, uh, which he loves, his his passive house home, uh, but he you know mentioned in passing that it heats up like a son of a bitch in the in the, in the summer, and uh, you know, yeah. One one thing I studied a fair bit on with low E coatings and solar heat gain was understanding how low E works with long wave and short wave infrared. You know, so the infrared that comes off the sun versus the infrared off the reflection. So. Right you know, it behaves very differently. And if you don't understand that and you're putting in, you know, passive solar and you're with the surface for low E, you're allowing a lot of heat in and it's trapping all of it in. Were in you fact, in that session? I think it was in Kelowna, uh, maybe where where the, um, the they, they built a house on the lake and the reflection was coming off the lake and, and, and like melted the windows or something. There's a Fencan talk. I think, what do they call them? Tech Talks? Yeah, yeah. It's on the website. The one. I recommend, so this is what happens when you design a home. So it, an energy advisor that says, let's put a 0.5 solar heat gain requirement in this whole home design because then and we'll put air conditioning in to deal with it. So that's great. Okay, so 0.5 is, that's a high solar heat gain. So in a small room in a house, it's going to overheat. The air conditioning will kick in. Okay, it's great. So there's this product out there called heat reflective blinds. That you put on the inside. That was it. It was the blinds. So right. people are going to, homeowners are going to go, man, my house is too hot. This guy with his passive house is going to go, my house is too hot. So he's going to put heat reflective blinds on the inside so he can cool his house, keep, so his air conditioning bill gets lower and all this stuff. Well, what do people do in the summertime? They go on vacation. Yeah. What do you do when you go on vacation? You, turn your, you turn your air conditioning off, you close your blinds. So you come back from vacation and it's, you know, you got a couple of days in August where it's 40 degrees outside south facing. And it, this, in this case, it melted the windows. Yeah. Cause the there was something about the, the wavelength coming through from the outside was one thing, but it reflected off the blinds, the back of the blinds uh, in, such that it would not go through the yeah. coating. And, and, and so you had this buildup, you had this constant buildup of heat in there. They figured it got to be, 200 or 300 degrees or something in there. It gets, well, if it can get to the softening, the softening temperature of vinyl is fairly low. So, yeah. you know, it, it, so it can get to that temperature and it can soften the vinyl where it loses its structural integrity and away it goes. So, but this is the consequence of, like I've had energy advisors say, well, we'll just put air conditioning in as a solution. So we want to put high solar heat gain in because it reduces the heating load in the wintertime. And we'll put air conditioning yeah. in or heat pumps in to combat the overheating in the summer. 
great, except the house is ducted for heat. It's not ducted for cooling. So that's mm. problem number one. So small rooms facing south or west are going to heat up faster than a big room on the north side. And then so you create all of these conditions that are starting to really, sometimes it's in a way good to have an overheating problem because it's starting to trigger designers to kind of go, whoops. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can tell them over and over and over again, but the software says it works. And so the, the challenge I'm seeing a little bit is we're becoming too dependent on software to tell us what to do. Mm. And we're not using our personal experience to go, that's not a good idea. And, um, you know, I spent half of my fenestration business manufacturing side on the renovation side. So I saw why people replace windows. And, and so that experience taught me a lot about, I would say majority right now of window replacement businesses in, I'll take British Columbia because I'm most familiar with it, is overheating in the summertime. People right. are not replacing windows because they want to reduce their heating bill. Our heating bills are still fairly low, but a lot of existing homes don't have air conditioning. And when they learn that they can cool their house down by upgrading windows to some lower solar heat gain products, the impact, I, used, I tell people all the time, I lived in a second floor, my bedroom in the house I grew up was second floor with a west facing window. And I spent my summers sleeping in a tent in the backyard. Yeah. <laughs> my room was so hot in the summer. This is just a standard old school aluminum frame window from the eighties, double glazed, no low E, right? Sure. So so this is sort of the, the thing is like my experience as a kid taught me this is wrong yeah 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 <laughs> so, sometimes if i was lucky i could commandeer the fan yeah. the one fan that we had yeah. and blow the fan on me what, so so what this is green square deals you know yeah. so this you know when you start talking about technical challenges this is this is one that's being fought i think quite a bit and being yeah. worked, worked really hard on so i'm seeing a lot of really smart people spending a lot of time on this thermal modeling and coming up. So I'm really excited to see where that's going to go and lead into. It's dominating the conversations of the industry, which likely has to happen. I think um, something that I think industry needs to really prepare for is what I call taller than six stories. And so this is one where with the reduction, with the elimination of the combustibility limitations in the national code, you're going to see in, in BC, they've allowed for up to 12 stories wood frame. So you're going to start seeing more and more product that was not a viable option for taller than six stories become available. What that's going to trigger is lower U-value windows going on 8, 10, 12-story buildings. Well, those buildings traditionally used to have aluminum. And you're going to start seeing U-values specified in those buildings that aluminum can't meet anymore. And so they're going to look at fiberglass and vinyl as an alternative to those buildings. But yeah. what does a 12-story building have that a six-story building didn't have? You know, much higher wind loads. Wind load. Protection requirements. You know, what is a, you know, PVC deflects and fiberglass will deflect more than aluminum. So there's this one thing that I'm recommending a lot of manufacturers pay close attention to is the structural ability of their windows. You know, in a, we've kind of done a lot of NAS testing, get a report, good, we're done. You know, you're in a six-story market max, and so you're probably capping out at PG40 for your structural whether you're getting your deflection L over 175 at that. But once you start pushing into the PG50 range, it's 55, 60, and you start getting eight foot 
dimension product, you're going to start seeing some more rigorous requirements going into the product. So it's an area I recommend people pay close attention to because architects and developers are getting wind of the fact that you can put in a vinyl window in an 8, 10, 12 story building, but they're not necessarily designing them properly yet. And that's, that's something I'm working on with the architects is to help them design fenestration into these taller buildings so that there's more options available to them. But it also is going to take the industry to, to do more testing to develop their product to meet the higher performance requirements that they go into as well. So, so it's going to be a, I think it's a technical opportunity, what I like to call. Like so people say, oh, there's technical challenges. There's technical opportunities that are very solvable if you focus your attention in the right area. So it's a huge opportunity. And 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 so much of what we're talking about does does translate down to opportunity. And 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 but you know, massive pace of change, vinyl windows in 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 high rise. I mean, no one, well, you know, no one saw that coming. The BC government just announced because you know the lack of housing. So they basically said um they put minimum building heights at SkyTrain stations of 20 stories and minimum building heights right. of they of 12, of 12 stories by like bus loops and other transit hubs. Holy moly. So a developer who bought a chunk of land at a, so they're doing this big SkyTrain expansion into the Metro Vancouver area into the neighborhood I live in actually, which has a shopping mall, a one story shopping mall that covers probably like, I don't know, 50 hectares. <laughs> and I was saying to people, I'm like, they're going to put a SkyTrain station right in the middle of it proposed. This whole yeah. area is going to go 20 stories, like the amount of 20 story towers that are going to pop up in this neighborhood over the next 20 years. is going to be huge. And people are like, prepare for a, a community change. Like, oh, there'll be a revolt. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> anyone owning a house on the, the government is basically taking the power away from the municipalities to say no, and they're demanding it to be pushed through. And so these are the things like if you're used to selling 20 windows per house or 30 windows per house, get ready for 3000 windows per quote. Yeah. Like, like this is where like ramp up and pay attention because these types of markets are going to be, you know, you know, I wouldn't say the single family house is dead, but I think the single family spec home is going to be dwindling. Um, you know, people are paying $2 million for a spec house now. Like, is that, is that foreseeable into the future versus townhomes and, and that? So, so there's technical opportunity, not necessarily technical challenge. The, the cool part is, is that there's just experience everywhere and um, that you can rely on going into these markets. So don't feel like you got to do it alone. That's what I keep telling people, like tap into the, the whole industry. And, and this is where I think, you know, groups like FENCAN and the technical committees can really provide a lot of resources and support for manufacturers that are trying to figure out like, how do I go into that market? So. Have you had any manufacturers asking you about um, EPDs, uh, environmental product declarations, uh, that kind of thing? Um, no. I don't know if that's something Leighton even does, but, but. And I've not seen it come across my desk yet. It's not yeah. a it's not a priority kind of component. Um, right. You know, this we're just starting. I think there was there was a conference about a month ago in BC here where they just started talking about the embodied carbon calculations and how to mm -hmm. do that. The environmental, like you're talking about, like sourced material type of thing. Is that? Well, what what's going to happen is right when 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 they building code twenty thirty building code. Building code 2030 will ask for the uh, uh, for the measurement. Uh, building code 2050 will restrict uh, what you're allowed to do uh, and what you're allowed to have in embodied carbon. And and the way they're going to what they're going to do is 
every manufacturer of every component in the building is going to have to provide an environmental product declaration yeah. saying this is how much carbon is is made in the in the in the making and delivery et cetera et cetera life cycle of my of my of my product and and so everyone's going to need these like this is my point everyone is going to need these things right they're all going to need them probably right. Yeah, I think um, if it's 2050, great, because they're going to need a lot of time to figure well, out. Well, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is where I get to, like, there's policies created, but then sometimes the process to to meet the policy doesn't exist. Yeah. And, like, the city of Vancouver has got, like, four different paths for doing thermal modeling yeah. in their processes. And they're, like, it's just sometimes kind of going, like, okay, let's just come up with one. Yeah. Um, I take stuff like uh, LEED. Um, you know, I've right. got, I was a big part of that sort of movement, uh, about 20 years ago and kind of went through that program myself as a consultant for lead. And, you know, they have, for example, uh, you know, manufactured product from a distance from the, from the job site type of thing. So within right. 500 kilometers, but it's, they're not, they're interesting little concepts because they're taking final manufactured, but then like, where does the glass come from? Where does the stainless steel come from? Where does the resin come from? They're not looking at it at that level. The question I have when it comes to the embodied carbon, like a manufacturer, window manufacturer is a window assembler. You know, we're not, window manufacturer isn't making the raw material. So there's a, there's a very complex structure that's going to have to come with this type of requirement mm -hmm. because, you know, manufacturer is going to have to depend on their glass supplier to give them information. Um, the spacer bar they use, if it's silicone or stainless steel, where's that coming from? Is, are they going to get to the point where I want to know what mine the nickel came from? You know, that type of thing. Like, are they yeah. looking that deep? How far down the rabbit hole can you actually go with this thing? It's actually spooky. And I think sometimes we have this very generic embodied carbon conversation, but we actually don't think about how challenging, like resin is a globally traded commodity. Like, yeah. Where did the silver, where did the silver in the coatings come from? Yeah. Uh, so until yeah. they start kind of asking, this is where I use the example of like thermal modeling or whole, whole home, like hot 2000, it's all reference based. It's not actual performance. It's yeah. based on assumed metrics that we can use as a baseline to compare. So there's comparable metrics and then there's actual performance metrics. And so it'll be interesting to see how they go about doing these calculations and coming up with the formula because um, it's gonna take a, a community of people to figure out how to do it. But, you know, it goes without saying, like the importance of it, I think is, it's a good conversation to have because I think we're throwing too much stuff into homes that is unnecessary, to be honest. Cause what you're gonna get is industry will innovate and they'll go, I bet you we can take a lot of carbon out of our material. Right. Now, the consequence of that is like road painting lines. Have you ever noticed now that road lines last like two years? Right. You know why? No. I believe, I don't, I'm not an expert on this one, but I believe they banned the type of oil-based paint that was being used in road lines. Probably. So the, durability, the durability of the paint went way down. So now they're having to paint road lines way more frequently. So what's worse for the environment? painting the lines every couple of years or using an oil-based paint that lasts much longer. Or having that oil. Yeah. Like having that oil. Okay. It's sitting on the asphalt, which is all oil anyways. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and there's oil sitting there or burning the oil in the truck that is painting the lines. <laughs> yeah. So like, like I used to have this in my building envelope days, you know, to use building paper, like the black tar paper on a yeah. wall or like a synthetic, like Tyvek. 
what's better? Well, one's synthetic, one's organic. Right. Right. So what right. do you want to put behind vinyl siding, which is synthetic? Yeah. Right. Like what's going to fail first? You end up having to reside your building yep. because the paper doesn't have as long of a performance. Now, maybe that's fine. It's organic. It's got organic paper in it. And, and so there's this idea of durability has to come into the conversation of embodied carbon in a roundabout way as well. Totally. Um, so, yeah, well, that has to be right in there. Yeah. Because if they cap, if you cap in embodied carbon that goes into it, but results in a building being less durable, what does that mean if the building won't last as long? Yeah. And so something we have to start thinking about is, you know, we build houses based on like 50 year life cycles, but I think we need to be building houses on hundred year life cycles, potentially, you know, so that could change the embodied carbon conversation because like just changing the life cycle of a house now is going to have, it might be make sense to put a bit more carbon into the construction of a house because it'll last longer. Right. Right. Okay. So the, the, to, to, to your point about, about generating the EPDs and, and, and how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go on where all this stuff is coming from and everything? I think, I think there's a, the, the there's an interesting somebody needs to get the, the 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 consultants and the manufacturers and the architects and then also the academics together in the same room uh because the academics and some of the higher thinking researchy uh architects seem to feel like they have a really good handle on this they 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 are very very confident that they can tell you the, the the carbon contribution of things and and Juliet Cook did a great presentation at at Windor about this and uh, from Half Design Studio very smart people over there and boy she seemed to figure like she seemed to feel she had all the numbers um I, I and and uh, but every time I look at that I go man how how can you have all this figured out like like there's so many inputs and it's it, it's so complicated. I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I think I, you, you raise a good point. So many inputs and it's so complicated. We have to design things to the level that a manufacturer, like who is going to be doing this work, right? So if manufacturers have to hire PhD people or yeah. master's students, like people with master's degrees in order to do this type of work, we've, we've done something wrong, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, there's, it's really good to have you know, from an academic level, someone study this and do their PhD on it. Like, you know, therm, I believe that comes out of like the way we do thermal modeling comes from that world. Right. And, you know, we end up creating systems and tools now so we can train people in a course to use it. And so we always have to, you know, I always like to say everything's on a spectrum. You know, the world wants things to be black and white, yes, no, good, bad, right, wrong. But the, the world is on a spectrum. It's a line. And I actually do an exercise with teams where, you know, draw a line on a board. And on one side, you write creativity. And the other side, you write conservatism. Well, what happens when you're all creative? You, you get chaos. It's crazy. Yeah. Right. What happens when you're ultra conservative? Nothing changes. Yeah, you get tyranny, right? You get yeah, this. Yeah. Exactly. Nothing changes. And But the reality is, is we all live on certain parts on that that line and and so i think having academics without academics in the room we won't move forward because they're the thinkers you know you need someone who's thinking about something and they're going to write a thesis and they're going to research it and they're going to find all these paths but they have to engage with people that can go wait a second <laughs> yeah you know, here's this thing and here's that thing and it's like i saw 
with paints an interesting one because even like primers and stuff you're seeing these chemicals being pulled out of products and it's reducing their performance life and so you know are we having that conversation yeah and the, is that the actually thing a that scares me a bit is that we we think oh this is bad carbon is bad well that's the black and white conversation the reality is is carbon is good in the fact that you know, is it a renewable reason? Like building a 12 story building out of wood versus like concrete versus concrete, right? So there's so many different ways to look at things. Like what does it mean to build a 12 story building out of wood? It's gotta be chemically treated. Yeah. Is that bad? So will it, la will it last as long? Concrete lasts forever. You know, I'll, I'll, um, I don't know if you go back about probably close to 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I think it was Greenpeace. There's a big initiative to get rid of chlorine. Anything oh, that was oh, yeah. And they and went so to PVC. Yeah. There's a big push to get rid of PVC. And yeah. there was like, wait a second, we treat our water with chlorine. So it's drinkable. And I'm kind of going, like, how many kids' lives have we saved by having pure drinking water with chlorine versus let's get rid of chlorine treatment and water? Like, is there a better way to do it? Like, so there's this whole concept of of you know, what do people say? Like, you know, oxygen is slowly killing us. It just takes about 80 years. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it, it we need it but it's gonna it's killing us it's actually a we can just breathe something a little more inert <laughs> we'd last a lot longer yeah. we breathe argon and, <laughs> and so you know this is where i i want to create a lens a perspective and a lens for the industry that's you know there's academics doing this there's code makers doing that there's manufacturers over here there's architects over there and i'm i'm trying to look at it all and go yeah, yeah it's, it's all good and the reality is, you know, the diagram when you make all these circles and you get that overlap and right in the middle, you get that, yeah, you get that sweet spot. That's really, we need people whispering in other people's ears. You know, you're not all powerful. Yeah. You know, you don't have, you're not, you're not God type of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just because you've done a calculation doesn't mean it's right. And, um, and so I think, you know, the mutual voice of an industry is going to be important. So. Awesome. Anton, that was a fast hour and a half. Uh, believe it or not, <laughs> this is a this is a this has been a this has been a long one, but a great one. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there and uh, encourage. Where, where where do people reach out to you, Anton, if they uh, if they want to talk to you about anything? Uh, easiest way is LinkedIn. I'm on I'm on it a lot. So if yep. you don't have my contact information, search me up and connect. Um, email Anton A N T O N at LaytonConsulting.com. Um, just how it sounds, uh, is another good way. And, um, you know, I'll be at every, pre every industry event as much as I possibly can. I'm sorry for not being at Windor just through some transitions. I needed to put some focus into my local areas and do some things, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to some working nationally as well across the country. So I'm not just focusing on BC. We're for like Leighton, we're focusing across the country as well. So, um, so yeah, so we'll, you know, look me up and, we can go from there. Fantastic. Anton Van Dyke from Leighton Engineering uh, is uh, available uh, also uh, in your print edition of uh, Fenestration Review a couple times a year. And uh, he's uh, he's he's going to be out there uh, talking to everybody across uh, across the country. Anton, thanks so much for uh, joining us today and, uh, and sharing all your, your great insights. Appreciate it, Pat. Thanks, everybody. Fenestration Conversation is a presentation of Fenestration Review Magazine, 
and Annex Business Media.